John Powell talks about a time when his mother was disabled and he says, I used to carry my aged mother up and down the stairs of our home in Chicago and she would grab onto the banister while I was carrying her up or down the stairs and she'd hold on to it so tightly that we couldn't move. I'd say, Mama, you gotta let go of the banister or we can't move. And she'd look at me with her plaintive little eyes and say, I'm afraid you're gonna drop me. I said, Mama, I'm gonna drop you right now. When I count to three, I'm going to drop you. And then he would start counting and she would let go and they would go two more steps up or down the stairs before she'd grab on again. He says, this is in microcosm my daily interaction with God. I'm hanging on to the railing, to the banisters of life. I'm hanging on to these little things that make me feel secure. But God loves me more than I love my little mother. And God actually knows where we're going. Sometimes we can find ourselves holding on, clinging so hard to the things that we think make us happy or fulfilled or secure, and we don't realize that it's Jesus who's carrying us, and the harder we hold on, the harder it is for us to make any headway in the direction he's wanting to carry us. He knows where he's taking us, and we don't. What are you clinging on to? What's your railing? What's your banister? And what will it look like for you to loosen your grip to let Jesus carry you where he wants to take you? It's a challenge. Those first recipients of the letter to the Hebrews knew very well. They had all the rites and rituals of Judaism to hold on to. They had, you know, their former families and former social networks calling them back saying, hold on to us. We'll get you safely to the other side when to hold on to those things would have been to abandon Jesus. They would have to let go of such banisters, railings, to let Jesus carry them home. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. We talk about being aliens and strangers in this world and what it therefore looks like to live by faith in future grace. This is God's word. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah when warned about the things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents 
as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand of the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. What do we see here? They admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth, and therefore they lived by faith in future grace. What does it mean to be aliens and strangers on the earth? Uh, an alien or a stranger is somebody who doesn't view this world as their home. They admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. These are terms that, that today we would say migrant or refugee, people who aren't from around here, who maybe don't feel like they belong here. It means to feel homeless in a world that doesn't know God. An alien is somebody who's not from around here, who doesn't always share the same customs as the locals here on Earth. We have assumptions that differ from the locals as aliens and strangers, as migrants, as refugees. We have traditions that differ from everybody else. We have expectations that are different from the locals. We have a different understanding of why we're here, what we're living for, and how we plan to go about that. A completely different set of expectations. We're aliens and strangers, the author is saying. And this doesn't necessarily mean poverty because Abraham is listed here as the prime example and, and he was filthy rich. But God called him to leave his family and his home and his gods and to travel to a new land that God would provide to form a new family, a new people, a new hope in a promised land. It meant that Abraham had to burn some bridges behind him in order to trust God and throw in his lot with God and with God alone. An alien or a stranger doesn't view this world as home. And that means that we as followers of Jesus are the peculiar ones. We're weird. That's the language in the King James Version of 1 Peter 2.9. You're a peculiar people as aliens, as foreigners, as migrants, as refugees, as strangers. We're a peculiar people um, because we belong to God and he's taken us as his particular possession. We, as a community following Jesus, uh, 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 are going to be radically different if we're faithful to Jesus from our surrounding culture. The gospel, you see, changes how we think about power and the gospel changes how we think about sex and the gospel changes how we think about money, and the gospel changes how we think of the poor, and the gospel changes how we view our careers. You know, the gospel changes how we think about everything. And that means that if we're doing it right, we're going to be really weird. We're going to be peculiar because we're aliens and strangers. We're not from around here. We're from somewhere else. We belong to God. And Jesus has rescued us and changed how we think how we feel, how we process, what we expect, what we think is ours by right, and what we give up over to him, which is everything. Um, 
I remember this peculiarity. I was being interviewed um, on St. Louis Public Radio last year by uh, Sarah Finsky, who um, she's now, she was NPR, now she's with Euclid Media Group, which owns the Riverfront Times and I think papers in seven other cities. But she interviewed me on St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, and, and her first question was, um, so Greg, you were a gay atheist teenager who fell in love with Jesus in college. How did that happen? And I was sitting here like NPR asking me for my testimony about how and why I followed Jesus. It was crazy, but she was so wonderful. She was so, I felt so safe. She was just, she's such a delightful person. And, and at the end, they took, um, you know, uh, 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 questions from people calling in. And of course, the first question was, um, why celibacy? And you could tell it was probably like celibacy. You know, <laughs> it was just, it was so out of the box. And, and I was able to just right off the bat say, you know, I realize the vast majority of, of your listeners right now are listening, thinking this guy is absolutely bonkers. And that's fine. We're the peculiar ones. We're supposed to be peculiar. We're supposed to be weird because we're aliens and strangers. And so I was able to just very casually talk about, you know, my reading the Bible and, and my relationship with Jesus and how I think this is something he wants me to offer him. And so I have, have no hesitation. And yeah, I can live without sex. I can't live without love. I can't live without intimacy. And God's given me those in his family, the church, in ways that are powerfully meaningful and significant to me. Um, but I think if we can just say up front when we're talking about anything controversial, that we realize we're peculiar, we're weird, we get that. Uh, at the same point, yes, we're weird because we're aliens and strangers, we're different from everybody else, we have to be if we're gonna follow Jesus. And yet, at the same point, in our weirdness, we're actually lining up whenever we're trusting God and, and living in line with what he says, no matter how sacrificial or difficult or crazy that seems, whenever we're doing that, we're actually lining up with our nature by which we were created to live in relationship with God. So it's actually, in a sense, everybody else is weird because they're not living the way they were created to be in relationship with God. And yet, from their perspective, we're the peculiar ones. And that's okay because when the church becomes indistinguishable from its surrounding culture. And that can be any culture. That can be the United States, that can be Western Europe, that can be ancient Rome, that could be Sub-Saharan Africa, that could be Southeast Asia, that could be 2,000 years ago, that could be 2,000 years from now. Anytime we start to look exactly like our surrounding culture, we lose our witness to the life-changing power of Jesus. And we actually functionally cease to be the church because we're not living as God's people. We're living as if we're our own belong and behold, belonging to and beholden to the spirit of the age in which we live. Um, we have to be peculiar uh, in order to offer the world an alternative culture that's different from the world's culture, an alternative culture in which Jesus is central and it's all about grace and the gospel is everything. And if the world can see a community of people living out the grace of Jesus, living out the good news that Jesus saves us completely by his grace so that we can live for God and for each other in lives of self-sacrificial love as Jesus self-sacrificially loves us, then God is going to use that to draw people to Jesus, to draw people to the church because they're going to see the beauty of the alternate culture, the gospel culture within the house of God, within the family of Jesus. They're going to see 
our peculiarity as God's possession, and God will call out his elect. He will bring the nations to us and to himself. See, an alien, a stranger, doesn't view this world as home. We realize we're the peculiar ones. And that's because our citizenship isn't in the world, but rather in heaven. It's the language that St. Paul uses in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, having your citizenship in heaven means that um, God's presence, and that's what heaven is, God's presence is where we most fundamentally belong. God's presence is our home. God's presence is where we long to get to. What we, and, and, and we have the rights of citizens of heaven that are secure because your passport is the blood of Jesus. And that's not going away anytime soon because it's the eternal blood of God's covenant. So our citizenship is in heaven. We're aliens and strangers here. It's, it's how Jesus spoke. Uh, I mean, you remember in, in John 15 when Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because this, the world hates you. Uh, it's strong language Jesus uses, and it's strong language here in Hebrews. You read, by faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world. That's strong language. Uh, it's hyperbole. It's a rhetorical overstatement because it was God who condemned the world. But Noah, by living for God and trusting in God's promise that this flood was coming and that this ark would save him and save his family, by trusting God, he was basically condemning the world because the world was being shown to be disbelieving and ultimately to its own self-destruction. Uh, he was showing what it, what it looked like to trust God and if you're following Jesus, people are going to think you're weird. It may occasion conflict. You know, you may have more, you know, civil rights to religious freedom in the U.S. than in some places in the world, but that doesn't mean that somebody's not going to think you're crazy or maybe even dangerous uh, if you're following Jesus. Of Abraham, we read that he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was living as one whose citizenship was in heaven as one who's peculiar because we're aliens and strangers on the earth. And as aliens and strangers on the earth, we're called to live by faith in future grace. Uh, this is the big point. It's, it's the only way to please God. It, it says here in Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't matter what you do. It's without faith. It's displeasing to God. It's dishonoring to him and showing that you consider him distrustful. Um, God could have required anything from us. He could have said, you need to pray seven times a day, you need to whip yourself, flagellation, you, you need to hate yourself, you need to fast 40 days and 40 nights, you need to become sinlessly perfect, but no, he, he said, you need to believe, you need to trust. That's what faith means. Faith is trusting or believing God. Whatever he says, um, he made faith the necessary ingredient. It's as if Jesus is speaking to you right now and he's saying, I am trustworthy, and I need you to trust me, to believe me, to trust that I am going to see you through, that my words are true and faithful, and that I really do love you, and my salvation really is powerful enough to save you completely. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I mean, it's the only way to please God. I mean, look at, I mean, nine times we read by faith. 
By faith we, by faith Abel, by faith he, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith he, by faith Abraham, by faith he, by faith Abraham, by faith, by faith, by faith, times three, nine times total. He's saying, I am strong. I have you in my arms. I am your Savior. I am your God. I need you to trust me. We live by faith. As aliens and strangers, we live by faith in future grace. What is future grace? Well, that's what we read here. All these people we read were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, but they saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Future grace is like when God says, humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord, and I will lift you up. And that's more than one place in the Bible. Um, that's a conditional promise. God is saying, where you are right now, what you're going through, I see you, and I need you to trust me. Humble yourself now. Lower yourself now. Trust me enough to do whatever I tell you, and I will take care of you, and I will provide, and I will exalt you. It's a condition. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord, and he will lift you up. While if you, you know, become proud, he will bring you low. Um, it's a conditional promise. They were to live by faith in future grace. Faith in future grace is what all of these examples in Hebrews show, uh, that God's going to be faithful tomorrow to what he promises to do tomorrow, and therefore today I need to trust and obey. Um, anyone who comes to him, we read, must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. It's, it's faith in future grace that God is going to reward. God himself is the reward. It's not that he's going to Reward me because I have merited some blessing because of my good works. That's foreign from the Bible and foreign from Hebrews. That's not what he's talking about. He's, it's not the point at all. Rather, he's saying that if, I tr if you trust me in this matter, whatever it is, if you trust me, I am going to pour out my blessings upon you because I am good. And you're going to be better off trusting in me than turning away from me and doing your own thing. You will never regret earnestly seeking God because he's good. You know, when you resolve to have faith, to trust God, to trust Jesus, whatever he says, and say, Lord, I'm going to humble myself before you, and I'm going to trust that you're going to lift me up in your own way and in your own timing, whatever that means to you, and I trust you. I'll do whatever you say. It's, it's powerful. It's like when a married couple that have been in conflict for years when in counseling, they come to a point where both of them say, I will do whatever God commands me, no matter what, regardless of how I feel, and regardless of whether my partner is doing the same. I will do whatever God wants. When two people, no matter how opposite they are, are both at a point where they will do whatever God says. When you pass through that intentional threshold to say, I'm not going to be weighing whether or not I do what God wants. I'm not saying, God, tell me what you want and I'll think about it. That's unbelief. I'm saying, God, whatever you want, I will do it. When two people both pass through that threshold at the same time and stay there, there is nothing that God can't do to restore love and to show a completely different way of doing marriage. It's living by faith in, in future grace, like when you're going into that counseling chamber and you don't want to go to counseling because at that moment you don't really want to be reconciled to this person but this is awful and, and, and you're going in there and you're just saying God I don't know what you're going to do here and I don't want to be here and I want to run I want to come up with an excuse I don't feel good today I'm sick I missed the bus whatever but I'm going to do this because I think you want me to and I'm just going to humble myself and I don't know if they're going to yell at me if they're going to say false things if they're going to flip the narrative I don't know and but I'm, I'm here, Lord. 
and I'm willing, whatever you want. You know, and I'm going to trust you, that you're going to take care of me, Father, because you're my dad, because you love me. You know, what's it look like to live by faith in future grace? Faith is being sure of what we hope for. It's being certain of what we don't see. Right now, I can't see God taking care of me tomorrow. But I'm going to act today with the trust and confidence and certainty that he is going to take care of me tomorrow because he's my dad. That's faith in future grace. Uh, trusting that God is going to show up. Um, you know, faith in future grace means I'm placing my confidence in whatever God says is true. Not what I want to be true, not what I feel is true. Um, trusting him, whatever he says knowing that he's going to give me the grace tomorrow to deal with tomorrow, and he'll give me the grace today to deal with today because he loves me. And so I can obey him with reckless abandon if need be because consequences are his department. Results are not my department. Faithfulness, trust, obedience, that's my responsibility. Outcome is God's responsibility. Results, consequences, that's all God's department. I don't have to worry about that because... I'm trusting him to be faithful tomorrow as well as today. Uh, it's the most basic description of how we live as followers of Jesus. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and he will lift you up. Like when you have somebody who's hurt you and God's calling you to forgive them and maybe they're not even repentant yet. So you can't be reconciled, but you can still resolve in your own heart that you forgive them and that you are going to stop asking God to judge them and actually ask God to change their heart and bring them to repentance, which is a big part of what it means to forgive somebody who's not repentant over what they've done. And that resolution to say, Lord, I'm not going to seek vengeance. I'm going to trust you. And that's, that's trusting that God's going to take care of me when I don't know that they're ever going to change but I can choose to forgive, trusting that God will provide tomorrow the grace I'm going to need tomorrow. Um, you know, it's, it's um, like Jesus said, taking the lowest seat at the table, trusting that the master will raise you up to a better seat. Um, it's like when you don't know how God's going to provide for you tomorrow, and yet right now he's giving you income, and so you're giving a chunk of that away because you want to give generously as you've received generously from God, and you're saying, God... I wish I could say I'm giving you money because I love you this much. God, I'm giving it because I need you this much. <laughs> I need you more than money. Uh, and so I'm, I'm giving away to other people when I don't know where my next paycheck's going to come from because I'm trusting God today to provide grace for tomorrow. It's how we live by faith in future grace. Um, I remember for me in college when I first learned about the idea of a Sabbath being the Lord's and that God wants us to work six days and not work one day, and, um, and I was a straight-A student who had always been a straight-A student, and my identity was very, very built on being a straight-A student. And my biggest fear in taking a day off every week to worship and be with friends and, and not work was that my grades would suffer, and I had to decide that it was more important that I be faithful to God than that I make straight A's. And I remember what happened is Sunday had always been the laundry write a paper, work on projects, get homework done, do the reading for the coming week day. And instead it became the most wonderful day every single week and the highlight of my week. And what happened to those seven days of work is they found a way to shrink down to six, six days. And, and the irony is like, I was still making A's. Um, I just was trusting God with that instead of trusting myself and relying on myself. It was having to trust God 
and faith in future grace. Um, it's like sharing your faith with, with your friends who don't yet know the grace of God and, and sharing about how you're trusting Jesus with your life, and, and they're going to think you're weird, and that could put awkwardness into that relationship, and worst-case scenario, you lose a friend. Best-case scenario, they join the church, and they're worshiping with you and following Jesus with you. Um, and yet having to put all those consequences into God's department and just focus right now with trusting him right now that he's going to provide me with friends. Um, he's faithful. He's not going to leave me alone. It may be different. It may be a lot of work, but I'm going to trust him with the results and do what he wants me to do, trusting him with the future, being certain of what I don't see, um, humbling myself in his eyes, knowing that he can lift me up. It's trusting him on a very personal level as aliens and strangers in this life in this world, trusting and living by God, by faith in God and in his future grace. Now, how is that possible? It's possible because this is actually all true. God actually has promised to bless us. He's promised us a city whose builder and architect is God himself. He's promised us that we'll be part of his kingdom. Jesus has promised that he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for you and that it is going to be fantastic. And when you get there, the first thing you're going to say is, oh my goodness, because I has not seen nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who trust him. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what's seen was not made out of what is visible. This isn't make-believe. Jesus, when he claimed to be the Son of God and Savior of sinners, he wasn't just using religious language. He was actually making some crazy claims that if false, we're wasting our time. There's no meaning in this life. And a billion years from now, when all the stars will have gone out, no one will have ever known that anyone ever existed, and we will all have been absurd and meaningless. But if Jesus did tell the truth, then there is a God, and there is an intelligence behind this universe. And that intelligence has become one with humanity in the person of Jesus incarnate in order to rescue us so that we will live forever. And he has promised Abraham looking toward a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. God has promised, friends, and he's trustworthy. Did you notice how Abraham's faith was driven by his trust in God's character? We read by faith, Abraham, past his age, Sarah Baron, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. See, if you view God as an angry ogre or as some kind of monster, if you view God as an angry judge in the sky, as an old and distant man who doesn't care with a big long beard, you're not going to be able to trust Jesus practically in this life because you're not going to know that God's trustworthy. But if you believe that in the tender eyes of Jesus, you are looking upon the eyes of God himself that fuels a billion stars and a billion galaxies, a billion light years away, and yet is also with him who is of a humble and contrite heart. If you see in the eyes of Jesus love and tenderness, and you know that those are the eyes of your God, then you will know he is trustworthy. And not trusting him is the most foolish thing I could ever do. Dr. Helen Rosevere served in medical missions in Central Africa in the middle of the 20th century, and she told a story of a mother at her mission station who had passed away after giving birth prematurely to her baby. And they tried to improvise an incubator, but the only hot water bottle that they had at the station was beyond repair. 
And so they had this little teeny, tiny, tiny baby that needed to be kept warm and they had no hot water bottle. And then the baby had a little sister who was now an orphan. And one of the little girls at the camp prayed, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today because tomorrow will be too late. And dear Lord, send a doll for her sister so she won't feel so lonely. It's the faith of a child. They're in the middle of the Congo, Belgian Congo, you know, 1950. There's not a hot water bottle down at Walgreens that you can go pick up. Dr. Rosevere says this. She says, that afternoon, a parcel arrived from England, and the children watched as they opened it. To their surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl who had prayed jumped up and started digging deeper into the parcel. She was sure that God would have provided the doll that she prayed for, and she was right. It was there because her heavenly father knew that child's faith, and five months earlier, before her prayer, God had led a women's church group in England to include both a hot water bottle and a girl's doll in with the clothes and supplies they sent because God is trustworthy. He sees and he promises. Scripture says if it's only for this life we have faith, we're to be pitied above all. But Jesus said that he's going to prepare a place for us, a city whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. There's a 15-year-old boy named Jacob Smith who is legally blind, and he is a free-ride skier. Jacob has extreme tunnel vision, and he has no depth perception on top of that. What he does see is incredibly blurry. His visual acuity is rated 20 over 800, which is four times worse than legal blindness. Uh, that means if you were going to put him 20 feet from uh, an eye chart, the big E, he would have to have it blown up four times in order to recognize that it's an E. Uh, so how does he ski? <laughs> His family keeps him on course. On competition days, Jacob's little brother, Preston, patiently helps him hike up to the very top of the mountain, and it's so high the lifts can't take you there. And then his dad, Nathan, helps him to get down. Jacob has a two-way radio turned up to the highest level in his pocket, and his dad is on the other end at the base of the mountain, calmly guiding him down the mountain on skis. It's uh, uh, on me, he says, to make sure I don't let him down. Uh, the dad says, I have to guide him through narrower chutes or not go off a cliff. Jacob is not restless. He knows his limitations. I think he has the ability to ski anything on the mountain, but he's not going to try to do it by himself. He wants to be with somebody who he trusts. He won't ski with somebody that he doesn't trust. When Jacob was asked how much he trusted his dad, he replied, well, I mean, enough to turn right if he tells me to turn right. There'll be many times when you're going to feel God calling you to do something that you don't want to do. You're not sure you're going to be safe. You don't know if you can trust him. And you need to understand that you are skiing blind down a mountain, and God has given you a two-way radio, and if he's telling you to turn right, he is trustworthy. Turn right.
because we're aliens and strangers here, and we live by faith in future grace. Jesus is whispering, saying, trust me. We're aliens and strangers. Trust me. I hold the future. Trust me.